You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 81. Today we're asking the question, how does simulation training develop Safety 2 capabilities? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray. I'm here with David Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome yet again to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we try to ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and have a bit of a look at the evidence surrounding it. So David, what's today's question? So Drew, today's question is, well, as you said, how does simulation training develop safety to capabilities? And the paper that we're going to talk about is an interesting paper, and it actually, I sort of uh, cheated this week a little bit because it was fired directly into my inbox because I follow one of the authors on Google Scholar, and it's something that you can do. You can you can create an account and follow authors and get notified when papers get published. So we're going to talk about that today because I thought it was a really nice way to explore a, an existing safety capability development process inside organizations and to look at what that might do to develop uh, some, you know, safety two capabilities that we talk about with some of the more recent safety theories. So, Drew, I suppose underneath this this topic we're going to talk about today is this idea that in in our complex socio technical systems, our frontline operators need to be able to handle very variable work conditions, and they need to be prepared to manage both the known situations as well as the potential unknown situations. And before we get into it, Drew, I think one of the broad perspectives in uh, resilience engineering and all of the new view safety theories is that work is always changing and therefore the performance of the work, even some very routine tasks, is always variable as the context, the situation, the people uh, and the circumstances surrounding that work changes. And so these constantly changing conditions of work required, require ourselves and, and operators to constantly adjust their work. And, you know, sometimes these adjustments save the day and sometimes they lead to incidents. And, and this is a, a place that I think is right in the middle of this debate about uh, how much we follow the rules and how much we rely on trust on the experience of operators. So Drew, we really need to consider what are the individual and the team skills that are necessary to enable frontline teams to adjust their performance in order to maintain safe and efficient operations during both expected and unexpected situations. And I, th I think this is a good illustration of where application of new safety theory can directly lead to changes in safety practice. One of the criticisms that safety two gets, oh, well, I guess really there's sort of like two criticisms. The first one is that there's not a lot of research and evidence behind it, which is a fair criticism, but you can apply that to anything in safety. So it's not a fair criticism, or at least not fair to single out safety two for that. But the other common criticism is that it's all lots of theory without a lot of knowing what to do in practice. And I think this focus in on the skills needed to handle variability is a good example of where you can directly take safety to attitudes and theories and use them to change the way we're doing things. Use them to adjust our training so that it's less about here is the one right way, the one safe way to do work, and more about how it's equipping people to handle a varying and unexpected world. Yeah, Drew, I think what you said there is true. I mean, as people would know now, 81 episodes into the Safety Work podcast, whether we talk about management systems or safety cases or audits or incident investigations or life-saving rules or critical risk management programs, you can, you, can, you can make the same statement about the evidence for those practices being sort of weak and variable and, and, and in some places not really existent as well, uh, which is why we're on this crusade, Drew, to bring the research that is there to to your organizations. So Drew, the paper we're going to review today, like you mentioned, it it, it talks about in the resilience engineering literature, uh, this idea of the skills and capabilities that individuals and teams need. But the authors point out that there's been limited research to and practical implementation of sort of targeted, uh, what they call resilience capability development. And when we say resilience capability, we're talking about the capability of people to for resilient performance of their work tasks. Just as an aside, Drew, I think this paper provides a really good overview in the literature review of the theoretical frameworks for resilience engineering and safety too. And it sort of lays out a really nice, clear narrative that really bonds the ideas of safety one and safety two together, which is that it shows how safety two plays out within a context of safety one. 
So we have we we're always going to have compliance context surrounding work and a routine and a dependability and a reliability of our work tasks, but shows how you know those tasks can need to switch modes into into safety too, uh, which I think is a really nice description in the literature review. Yeah, David, you've got me thinking a little bit about the way in Japan they have this interaction between Buddhism and Shinto, that depending on what part of life you're dealing with, you might apply the traditions of a different religion. If you're dealing with death, you're going to use one. If you're dealing with marriage, you're going to deal with another. And I almost think that the way it describes safety one and safety two here is like that sort of like hand, handing back and forth between theories, depending on the situation. You We use safety one to identify what can go wrong, and then we use safety two to steer us away from those waters. We use safety two to keep us generally safe, but when we get into an absolute emergency, we switch back to safety one. Yeah, Drew, a nice, nice pun there about steering away from, you know, the dangerous waters because we are talking, we are going to be talking about the maritime industry today. So we haven't introduced a paper. So unfortunately, that's a joke that I only got at this point. But, um, but we'll introduce the paper in a moment. But, but I think very few advocates of safety too would disagree that it's important to keep trying to identify those predictable ways that a system can fail and put in place uh, barriers and controls and and responses to those predictable ways that a system can fail. The main argument, though, in safety two is that this will never be enough when we're faced with complexity and variability. We'll never be able to predict all of the ways that our system can fail. Thus, we always need to maintain this close relationship, Drew, like you described, between the two modes, if you like, of, of safety. So, Drew, let's, do you want to introduce? Um, do you want to start by introducing the paper? Sure, though, if I have to introduce the paper, I need to pronounce the author's names. Uh, so the paper is called Balancing Safety 1 and Safety 2, Learning to Manage Performance Variability at Sea Using Simulator-Based Training. And I think they've pretty much put everything into the paper, into the title there. <laughs> they've told us the theory, they've told us what they're studying, they've told us the industry. Uh, pretty much the only thing they haven't thrown in is the exact research method into the title. Uh, the lead author is Aud Wall. Uh, other authors are Trond Kongsvig, Stian, and Anton Antonsen. Um, they're all from NDNU, which is the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Frequent listeners may notice that that name crops up a fair bit. There are a few sort of centres around the world that have strongly safety to influenced research. And there's a real cluster in Norway around maritime and coastal industries which are highly variable industries where safety one approaches don't fit very well. So you see lots of safety to and resilience style studies coming out of that. Um, and along with that, I think, comes a good tradition of very grounded ethnographic or interview style research. Andrew, do you want to... And, and so the paper was published in Reliability Engineering and System Safety. It's got a, 2000, a late 2019 publication date. Do you want to mention anything about that journal? We haven't had a lot from uh, RESS. Uh, so far on the podcast? Yes. Yeah, so so gr growing up, I always thought that there were two big safety journals, safety science and reliability engineering and system safety. And depending on what type of study or what type of focus you have, you tend to publish in one or the other as your target journals. If you've done a good study, you sort of think, okay, that's good enough to send off to either safety science or to res. And then if you don't send it to one of those, then you might pick one of the sort of next tier of more specialized or boutique journals. So system safety is rather eclectic. Reliability engineering and system safety tends to go for more quantitative, more mathematical, more process driven um, approaches to safety. So it's a little bit surprising to see a study both about education and using interview methods published in res. Uh, I don't know the story behind that. Oh, the paper had some good photographs and diagrams and and simulators are pretty technical, Drew. So, um, but I was it was nice to see uh, ethnographic research in in uh, reliability engineering system safety journal. Uh, yeah, now that you mentioned it, may be that they're dealing with a highly automated system. Res tends to be a bit more technology focused. Yeah, and and quite a big um, system safety theme in in what they're talking about that we'll talk about shortly. So Drew, the study was so it was in the maritime industry, like we like we said, and in the literature view, they said in 2017 there was almost 3,000 fatalities and nearly 100 ships lost internationally to maritime incidents. That sort of blew me away because we don't hear about you know two ships a week being lost lost or sunk at sea. So did that surprise you? That 
Yeah, the number of fatalities didn't surprise me, but the number of actual ships lost did. Um, Although we're talking about ships of all sizes here, and lost doesn't mean, you know, disappeared off onto a Pacific island, never to be seen again. Um, It basically means written off. Yeah, and I think what we saw is um, in the literature, they talk about human error is seen as a major contributor to these incidents. And I suppose we can just look at the response to the event uh, in the Suez Canal in March this year that blocked, I suppose, one of the world's most important, if not the most important shipping route for, for almost a week uh, and and where the blame fell for that for that incident. So these maritime workers, extremely remote and, and variable uh, work context. And so uh, from a researching point of view, that these workers are, you know, really have this need to manage both known and unknown situations. Well, as we're going to see in the paper, maritime is very, very automated. You know, ships' bridges can look as complicated as aircraft cockpits with many of the same issues. And so this human error as the major contributor to accidents is very similar to the way that pilots typically get blamed for aircraft accidents. Most of the time, the vessel or plane is being operated totally automatically. And the person on the bridge is keeping lookout, monitoring the controls, might not even be able to see anything out of the window due to the weather conditions. But when something goes wrong, the last line of defense is the human taking over. And so the last thing that pretty much always happens in a maritime accident or in an aviation accident is the human fails to stop the accident happening and they take the blame. Doesn't mean that they are the major contributor, but it means that human performance is always a vital part of what we use to prevent accidents. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. So the aim of this study was to explore how resilient performance can be achieved in practice, which is a great aim to, to take these theory ideas and, and, and look at how they can be achieved in practice. And to do that using simulator-based training to maintain safety of operations by managing performance variability and developing these resilient skills. So the training that we, we're going to talk about, so training of officers, deck officers uh, that operate a very specific computerized system on what they call shuttle tankers. So these are the vessels that uh, head offshore out to a to an oil rig, or uh, and sort of hovers not the right word, but sit sit offside for between sort of one to three days while they fill up the vessel with oil, and then they head back into the harbour and offload it into a storage tank, and then head back out. So these shuttle tankers and the simulator based training allows the the deck officers to experience the operation of those tankers in a, in a simulated environment that, that, that looks and feels like their work workplace. And, you know, they can safely test the ship's operational limits and trial and error and all those other good things that you would normally do in a simulator if you think about, uh, you know, pilots in a, in a flight simulator and things like that. Safe environment that's as close to reality as possible. Uh, you can have the accident without having the accident. And David, I don't know if you thought it was funny, but the, the trainees in this scenario are being taught to be dynamic position operators. So you know, used to be you got to be captain of the ship. Today you get to be a dynamic position operator, someone who looks after a computer, which in turn looks after the automatic positioning and heading control of the vessel. Yeah, it's, it's probably a bit like a pilot changing to becoming the, uh, the autopilot operator uh, instead of being called a pilot. But that's exactly what this is, dynamic positioning. So DP, different types of DP systems on different types of vessels, you know, DP, DP2, DP3, depending on, uh, you know, the vessel. And that's how the, the computerized system holds the vessel basically in the same location. So you've got the wind and the waves and everything moving around and, and the dynamic positioning system either keeps the vessel at rest or keeps the vessel on a particular heading uh, by a whole range of, um, you know, GPS, very, very sophisticated uh, GPS uh, information and sensor information from from the vessel. So the operator really, you're right, Drew, is a stand and watch function. Uh, so applies a supervisory control uh, while the computer's dynamically kind of managing the position of this vessel. Which would be nice and easy if the vessel was floating in a bathtub. Not so easy if the vessel's out in the North Sea. But yeah, if, if listeners are interested, the, the paper's got all sorts of details about dynamic positioning and all sorts of details and pictures about the simulator setup. Uh, but that, that's not really what the focus of the learnings in the paper are about. So the paper's also got a bit of a literature review about learning and how simulators are meant to support learning. Uh, this is something that we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast, most recently in episode seven, 79 
we were looking at learning for new trainees in retail, elderly care and metal trades. And I think we've also looked at simulators before, but I can't quite remember the episode, David. I think early on, maybe in the 30s or so, we looked at virtual reality and safety training. But we'll throw in a bit of a recap here about how learning happens. So learning is one of the sort of key elements of resilience, according to Eric Holnagel. So he, he says that, you know, a resilient organization, they anticipate, they learn, they monitor, they respond. Um, and learning is pretty obvious. It's about modifying or acquiring new knowledge and skills. We want this to happen for the organization, but for it to happen for the organization, it also has to happen for individuals within the organization because knowledge doesn't just sit inside pieces of paper, knowledge sits inside people's heads. So to have it in the organization, individuals have got to learn. And so they're sort of like, actually, David, do you want to take us through the single and double loop learning? The idea is that's talked about in, in learning, um, particularly by Shane, I think in terms of single loop and, and double loop is where we can either intellectualize the learning or, or operationalize the learning. So it talks about, there's a lot in the paper about in-use models and uh, and thought, thought models. So it's in my understanding of the way that it's used in, in the context of, of this thing is we can give people the knowledge, but the simulator training is really making sure that it actually changes the way they practice, changes the way that they think about uh, how to, how they think about and perform their tasks. And I think one of the pieces of, uh, one of the comments in this paper is that most organizations uh, generally only change the way they think, not the way that they act, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is something that we touched on in episode 79, that when you're learning in school or university, we've got this quite sophisticated model of how you learn. You start off with a problem, you then do something in response to that problem, you reflect on the stuff that you've done, and most of the learning happens during that reflection on performance, not in the upload of content that allows you to do the performance. But when we come to organisational training, very often we think that people can learn just by uploading knowledge to them. And so we don't give them the opportunities to learn by doing, let alone to learn by reflecting on doing. And the idea of a simulator program is to put in all of those steps. So to give people a very concrete experience where they are you know, actually piloting the ship, to get them to think and talk about what they're doing, which is the reflecting, um, and then using those lessons to then modify their understanding and then go back and try again to apply what you've learned to experiment. Um, and so then that basically takes you through a cycle because once you've done that, you're back to having a concrete experience, which you can then reflect on again and continue to learn by continuing to do. And so the good thing about the process we're going to talk about in the method here and, and which was already set up in this particular established training scenario uh, was that built-in reflection. So not just the simulated training itself, it's important to understand understand that the results that we're talking about today were generated by that whole cycle of the knowledge component and then the practice component, component, then the reflective component. And even in this situation, there was a very interactive reflective component between peers um, on a particular training program. So might've been up to seven participants and then they all had a go in the simulator. They all discussed what they did. They got to observe what other people did. And you know, it was some of those uh, parts of the training process alongside the uh, simulator experience itself that the authors reflect probably generated, you know, the, the resilience capabilities more than just the actual, you know, using the simulator. Because uh, using the simulator is kind of just like doing normal work. Well, it's kind of fun because in normal work, you don't get to crash the ship. <laughs> your, your version of fun, Drew. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people who hop in a flight simulator and my sole purpose is to try and actually take off and land, not actually intentionally try to crash the plane. Um, it's actually harder to not crash the plane. Oh, I, I love using simulators to just, well, actually, I tend to use simulators to try to break the simulator by seeing if it can model the weird situations you can put it in. Yeah, speaking of um, the North Sea, and, and this study is, is being done in the North Sea, I was in Aberdeen, and I got an opportunity to be in one of the large offshore aviation uh, simulators for one of the operators there. And I reckon I, I got that helicopter in the air in the simulator for about 16 seconds before... Uh, it fell back to the ground upside down. So, you know, when you've got a simulator uh, instructor there saying, gee, I've never seen that before, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, you're not doing that well. Uh, so should we go through the methods for the research? 
Sure, let's do that. So, Drew, mixed methods approach, which was good, collected data over a six-month period, uh, observed uh, two full uh, DP dynamic positioning training programs. These programs are run over two days, so two classes, just observed uh, that entire end-to-end program. And alongside that did interviews with 12 uh, instructors and seven course participants. So 30 to 60 minute interviews, the instructors, the uh, the researchers were asking questions around what characterizes good simulator-based training, uh, what do you emphasize in your debriefing sessions and your, your interactions with, with the learners. And for the participants, it was about describing characterized simulator-based training that best enabled them to handle errors in the DP system or incidents during the, the DP operation. So really asking the, the participants, what was it about the training that gave them the, the capabilities to, to handle uh, the unexpected situations they face? It was a pretty straightforward question of what the researchers were trying to get at, Drew. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious what sort of provoked the research. Um, it seems to be set up as a bit of a training evaluation so typically this sort of thing happens, people are running a program and they just want to know, is the program effective? Uh, sometimes that's genuine inquiry. Sometimes it's because the people who are funding the program have insisted that it be evaluated. Sometimes it's because it's part of some larger organization that just requires that all programs be regularly evaluated. Um, and it's fairly normal in this sort of design that the researchers can't influence the thing that they're evaluating. So what we'd really love to see is some sort of controlled experiment where you compare people doing this program with people who do some other type of training activity. But usually there's simply just no opportunity to do that. The researchers just have to come in and look at the program as it is now, which gives you a nice naturalistic feel, a naturalistic description, but it limits claims that you can make about how effective the program is. Unless you've got a comparison, you can't really draw conclusions that it's effective. Yeah, I think what would have been really good uh, with with this sort of a study, Drew, is... uh like I said before, there was a whole training process that was wrapped around the simulator and the the authors make some claims about the impact of that process around the simulation itself. It would have been really good to have people just do the simulation component, you know, maybe without the feedback or maybe without other other processes. And then you can kind of, you could actually make some of those claims confidently about which parts of the training process were uh, contributing, you know, what you're claiming as an outcome. Would that be an idea, Drew? Yeah, no, that, that's a really good thought, David. Um, I hadn't thought about like testing that particular aspect of it, but you're right. They do make some fairly strong claims about the importance of certain parts of the training program. And if you wanted to test out those claims, the way to do it would be to remove those things and see what happens. See if they genuinely are as important as the researchers claim. Yeah, because one of the practical takeaways um, or that's, that's not written, Drew, that I've been thinking about as we've been talking about this worth saying now is that if the simulation environment is replicating normal work, normal work is variable and we give people variable situations in the simulator, then when people read this study and they read the process that gets wrapped around the work with the debriefing and the peer learning processes, you could say, well, well, can I develop resilient resilient capabilities without the simulator just by actually wrapping this program around normal normal work activities? So that's something that I'm curious about. Yeah. I mean, logically, according to the theory they're applying and the way they're describing the learning, you could do that for everything except for learning the limits of the system. So as we'll get onto in the results in a moment, one of the key things you can explore in a simulator is just how close you can get to the edge, which we would rather people weren't deliberately doing and then reflecting and talking about in their normal daily practice. Nice. Now, assuming that the 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 edge of the system in the simulator is actually where the edge of the system is in reality. But okay, all right. So the results, Drew. So look, there's three key aspects um, in learning to manage performance variability that came out of uh, the grounded theory analysis. So they did this 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 blank page uh, bottom up analysis of of all of their data. So the the ability to prevent adverse events by recognizing errors and solving problems in a flexible way. So how early can operators detect uh, a problem? with this automated computerized system and their ability to solve for that problem uh, in, in flexible ways. The ability for them to expand their limits of action through shared knowledge. So learning more about the way that the, the technology and the vessel operates, learning more about the different actions that they can take as an operator, seeing what actions others take. So actually just expanding their repertoire of actions. And the third one, Drew, is the ability to operate the system with confidence saying that you know people particularly when um when operators need to take over manually from the the automatic system like you mentioned earlier 
being able to do that swiftly and and confidently, you know, to take control of the situation. So those are the three areas that that the authors sort of said, here's our results, here's our three areas. Should we talk through each of them in turn, David? Yeah, let's let's make a few comments about each of those. Do you want to do you want to kick us off? Okay, so so the first one about recognizing errors and anomalies. They put in a big focus about very early identification. So before anomalies become actual problems, training people to recognize the, I guess, they don't use the term early warning signs or weak signals, but that's what that's what they mean is recognizing quite quickly that things are not quite right. And one thing I found really interesting about this one is that they create their scenarios by using incident reports. So this is a lovely blend of safety one and safety two, because your incident reports and investigations are very much a safety one activity. But they take the outcomes of that and feed those into designing training scenarios for resilience, which is a very safety two attribute. Yeah, Drew, I like, and I think aviation is very similar. So, you know, they'll read, so the instructors, when they're designing these, they'll read the incident reports, they'll see a particular sensor failed and the vessel responded in a particular way. And then they'll actually use that and, and, and program that into the simulator and, and, and use that as the, their scenario. So, and, and the, the participants said it was really important that these scenarios were, were realistic errors or problems. Like it's all fine to say, okay, the ship's sinking and there's this massive emergency, but, but the participants said, look, you know, we, we get more out of the program when we're dealing with, you know, realistic minor type of problems, which we, which sort of, um, are subtle, but you know, with the potential to cause us with big issues if we don't understand how to manage them. So a lot of these scenarios are just things like minor sensor failures or uh, errors in the display, which you can imagine in an automated system, those are the things that need human intervention because the automation is only as good as the information that the automation can gather. If a sensor starts to go wrong, then the system starts to drift. The operator needs to recognize that before things get out of hand. And I think, I mean, what we're talking about here is is the is the Boeing Max Eight sort of situation where because if the sensor provides certain data back to the computer, then the computer will respond and take action for the vessel uh, based on that data. So the operator's really got to know what the system's doing and and why it's doing what it's doing, and uh, and when to intervene. So the operators get to experience this, Drew. They get to go well if I, they get to go well if I do this, what happens then? If I intervene like this, what does the vessel do? And this broadens their understanding. This gives them this total scope of action and. Since we're talking about resilience engineering, I sort of this is this idea that you know Professor David Woods talks a lot about this capacity for maneuver. The more I know about the system, the more I know about what happens when I act in certain ways. Then the more capacity I've got for maneuver when I'm faced with uh, an anomaly or a problem um, in my normal work. So the, the second thing that they talk about is the idea of shared knowledge to define limits of action. This encompasses a few different ideas that. To me, it was a little bit non-intuitive that they put these together, but still kind of interesting. So like some of this is quite specifically training in how to follow specific procedures. So here is what to do in this situation. But then some of it was also giving people freedom within those procedures and giving them variability. And this is where a lot of the interaction between operators, sorry, trainee operators happened, that giving different trainees the same scenario and getting them to watch what each of them does. Following the same procedures, they still make different choices and have different ideas about how to deal with it. Yeah, Drew, like you said, in this scenario, this um, it's just the, the the loading operations under the dynamic positioning, which kicks in about 10 nautical miles out from the platform or the FIPS, the floating production storage and offload facility, whatever it is. And then there's this procedure, okay, so from 10 nautical miles down to 900 metres or whatever it is, then this happens, and then this happens to 500 metres, then this happens. This is how many minutes or hours each stage is supposed to take. So their time in the simulator, Drew, was anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours. Like they're actually going through this very specific procedure. And like you said, Drew, they've got all different weather conditions thrown at them. And so even with this very deliberate, I think the procedure in the in the papers only about seven steps to do this whole process but even within that it was sort of surprising just how flexible the operators kind of manage the situation based on on weather or you know just the own way that they operate I, I didn't actually know where to throw this into our discussion david so i've just put it under this section another thing that i noticed from the paper was that the participants weren't just given scenarios by the instructors they could also come in and ask to use the simulators and use them for re-practicing particular tasks that they wanted to practice. Or sometimes they'd actually have a question from operating the real system. 
and they would come in and want to try to answer that question by using the simulator. Um, so all of this sort of speaks to almost like a community environment where the simulator is one of the tools that people have in common that they can use to try things out. But it's really only part of the broader conversation they're all having with each other about how to do work and how to do work safely and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Yeah, absolutely true. And they get to see what what their peers what what their peers how they respond to situations and and how and obviously then what happens. And so again, a little bit like that first point, we're just sort of expanding our understanding of the system and our options to to respond and adapt. And Drew, the third one is operating the system with confidence. And the idea is the the participants said that to be successful uh, as a well a dynamic positioning operator, you must feel safe in unusual contexts, like you said. You're on the bridge of a vessel offshore. You might not be able to see out of the windscreen. You know you're somewhere near a, you're somewhere beside a, a an oil and gas producing facility, and you're not sort of you've got no hands on the controls. And so it's this this idea of if we've got a detailed enough knowledge of the way that the dynamic positioning system works, and we've got enough knowledge of the vessel, we've kind of got the confidence to be you know calm and focused in that in that very unusual situation. And one of the particular reasons they want people to be calm is they want people to be willing when necessary to turn off the autopilot um, and have the confidence that that's not an unsafe thing to do, that they're quite comfortable handling the vessel. And this is something that happens a lot as we make systems more automated, is people get much less practice in the basic skills. I I did a search for seamanship because I thought that might crop up somewhere. The paper doesn't actually mention the word seamanship anywhere, but I get the sense that this is what they're talking about, is people in aviation talk about like a loss of airmanship skills that people are so used to operating automated systems that they're not good at flying aircraft without those systems. Um, And the same here, they want people to have comfort using the system without the automation. But because the automation is what makes the system safe, you can't just randomly turn it off just to practice. But you can in the simulator. Yeah, I think that's right. Even though I said earlier that they, the participants, you know, got a lot of value out of those routine anomalies and and those small disruptions to to their work because they're they're likely to happen. They still spend a lot of time practicing those those big emergency situations, which is, you know, uh, the the worst case scenario. What they said is is a complete loss of power of the vessel, which means not only the, the dynamic positioning system goes down, but all systems on the vessel go go down and 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 thrust, and you're basically just drifting around in the ocean. And so they they still spend time practicing that sort of worst case scenario. I, I don't know how to read Norwegian understatement. But David, I don't know what you're, I was picturing like Australians or English or Scots in these sort of like circumstances where they're talking about whether the instructors let the trainees get into trouble. And you could almost like picture particular instructors and particular trainees. The instructors basically said that they set some of the trainees up to fail. (laughs) So if they've got someone who comes in that's overconfident, then they're quite willing to give them a task that they don't expect them to succeed at and then let them run right to the edge. But on the other hand, some of the inst- other people, they want to build up confidence. So one of the instructors says that they don't like letting people do things in a simulator that they would later be ashamed of. Um, another one said that they pause and give hot debriefs to the trainees. So like stop them in the middle of the simulation and give them a chance to work out what to do to, to have a sort of dialogue back and forth rather than just let them make a fool for themselves. So it's about building up people's genuine confidence and maybe pay- taking people back a peg if they've got too much confidence. Yeah, Drew, the, I suppose the performance variability of the instructors themselves, like exactly what you've described, and, and, and they go into quite some detail from those 12 interviews around how they said they had to you know, make all of those dynamic decisions on the spot. Like, is the person going to get m- more learning from just seeing what happens with uh, their actions that they're taking now? Or is the person going to get a better learning experience if I have one of these hot debrief where I just put the whole simulation on pause and in the moment sort of coach them through you know, the actions they're taking and what their thought process is and what might happen and actually correct it in the moment. So the instructors themselves, um, you know, it's a very complex system. This this idea of putting someone in a simulator, there's a complex system of a process around it, but also of interaction that happens within it uh, with the instructor as well. Yeah, until I read that, I just sort of assumed that every time they put someone in a simulator and wait till they either succeed or die and then restart it. But They're making judgment calls all the time about whether to stop and pause or to debrief or to just have a word while the simulation still goes or to just let someone get into trouble to see what happens. So, Drew, those three areas are the results. So this idea that what do we get out of simulation training? We get an opportunity and and how does it contribute to developing resilient 
capabilities of individuals. And so we get we develop the capability to recognize errors and anomalies early and respond in a flexible way. We get the capability to understand the safety limits of the system that we're operating within through through shared knowledge um, and experience. And we get this uh, this confidence in the operation of this of the system. We know how it works. We know what to do. So they're kind of the three ways that this simulation training sort of develops resilient capabilities. Drew, there's a few points in the discussion that I think are worth us talking about if you're happy to go on to that now. Sure. So these are mainly your notes at this bit, David. So I'm happy to move on, but I might just hand straight back to you to... All right. And they're actually the author's notes pretty much. So um, we'll, we'll go for that. So look, the authors talk about this idea of managing variability through experiential learning and reflection. So talking about just the importance of, uh, of learning by doing and then reflecting on what was done and, and what happened. So this idea of reflective practice from, from Shona, we know how important that is in, in, I suppose, all performance, be it sport, be it, you know, be it work task, be it possibly life as well. So having a simulation environment that's realistic and safe to practice hazardous work, uh, to experience, uh, you know, variable hazardous work, and then be able to step out of that safely and reflect on, okay, what happened? What do I need to change in terms of my frames of thinking around around this task and then go back into that environment again and try something different, reflect on that, try something different. So learning these resilient skills requires this reflection feedback and the simulator offers the backdrop to do this. It provides the, the experiential part, but it's actually that reflection and feedback that's wrapped around it that, um, that the authors say deliver the learning. So that's consistent with other sorts of learning theory and how we, how we teach at schools and universities. So, so I think that is fairly widely accepted knowledge. I don't think this paper really provides strong evidence of that, except it shows that that's clearly what the instructors and the trainees believe, is that they think that they're getting most out of these reflections and the conversations, not just out of the simulators. And that in itself is a bit interesting because the simulator is a very shiny toy. And to have people with this exciting technology who still say it's the conversations that matter, that is kind of interesting. Yeah, and important that we understand that the shiny the shiny toy provides the backdrop and the the vehicle, if you like, but it's you know the, the end-to-end process that you wrap around it to get the learning outcome. So Drew, they then start they then have a good discussion in this paper about balancing safety one and safety two and 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 sort of as in the literature review, restate this idea that Holnagel, when talking about safety two, always emphasized right from the start that safety two was intended as a complement to safety one rather than a replacement of it. And they talk about a couple of things that they've observed in this study about just how the boundaries between safety one and safety two are, are, are really quite blurred. And so I just want to sort of throw out there two ways that they describe. Uh, the first one you mentioned earlier, Drew, is that we actually go and look at previous errors and accidents, which is a very safety one paradigm. Look at look at what went wrong and then start looking at what, what failed. And then they use that uh, past experience to then build, like you said, build scenarios into the simulator that let people actually learn resilient skills by experiencing that failure mode, if you like, in real time and, and practicing what they do in and how they'd adapt to that particular situation. So it's like taking our, our safety one accident reports with causes and, and failures and designing kind of like a resilience training process around it. I think this is one of those areas where the rhetoric of safety two and safety differently has somewhat twisted the original message. Particularly, you know, this whole idea about human error and getting people to stop thinking about human error makes a lot of sense when you want people to focus on improving systems. But if the whole aspect of the system that you're trying to improve is the humans, then really it is worthwhile taking as a starting point where do humans contribute to the system for good or bad. And so in this, they quite explicitly take situations that get created from the technology that humans have in the past not handled successfully. So very directly identifying these human errors and then using those to create your training scenarios around so that people don't make those errors, so that people find different ways of handling the situations. And in those different ways that people find of handling the situation, that's where we get this learning from success. So if I get provided with the with the the failure mode that has caused an incident in the past, and I get to exper- experiment in the simulator, I find ways that actually work. I'm actually learning in a very safety two way from success because I'm not learning from the accident report about what that person did wrong and why it went wrong, and and theorising about what might work in the future. I'm actually putting into practice 
what might work in the future and actually understanding if it does work and learning from that success. So it's a very, it's a very, it's very tightly blurred, but I think very complementary way of thinking about how I take something that's failed, turn it into a, into a training situation and, and learn about how to be successful. Yeah, it's a very direct illustration that safety one is necessary, but not sufficient. Yep. You, you need that incident report, but the incident report is not enough to prevent the accident happening again. You need to move on to the resilient solution. Yeah, absolutely. And Drew, the second one is about balancing safety one and safety two in sort of in dynamic work situations. So this idea of, okay, I've got my, I've got my vessel, my DP systems clicked into autopilot. I've made my cup of coffee and we're 10 nautical miles out. And I know I've got sort of a day and a half to sort of approach this, this installation. And then I've got, so that, that's a very safety one thing. I've got a procedure, the system's working, I'm monitoring and watching for not for deviance and non-conformance or whatever errors or problems. And then I've suddenly got wind and waves and other things that rapidly change the operational limits. And so if we accept that this situational complexity isn't static, it's like what you said earlier, the implication is the need for us to quickly be able to go beyond our sort of our procedure following and, and have variable strategies to adapt to all of these variable situations that uh, we don't we don't know when or where or how they might arise. And the paper talks about where we've got where the situational complexity is low, then safety one mode of operation, we know the hazards, we know the barriers, we know the rules, we know the way the system functions. Uh, let's just follow it how the plan is meant to play out. And then in an instant sort of just changing this to this high situational complexity requires that we sort of break out of that um, that routine and be very tuned into the situation and, and the specific decisions that we need to make. So Drew, I thought that was, like you said earlier about having a having a mode of operation that's consistent with the situational complexity. David, I'd be interested in your thoughts about the underlying premise here, because the, the authors are drawing on an idea I've seen come up a few times in various safety two literature, which is this idea that if you've got low complexity, safety one works. And then if you've got higher complexity, that's when you shift to safety two. And I, I've never quite bought that assumption. It seems to just sort of like be invented out of nowhere as a neat map. And I've sometimes even like seen it in three, you know, low complexity, safety one, medium complexity, user blend, high complexity, use safety three. And I don't really think that situational complexity is what guides or should guide your safety strategy. I think it's more to do with the ability to pre-plan and predetermine, which we can sometimes do for very high complexity situations. It's, it's, it's in situations where your existing rules and plans fit, then you want to stick with those existing rules and plans reliably. And when you don't have well-defined rules and plans or they don't suit the situation, that's when you need to vary. And you know, maybe that happens sometimes with low complexity, high complexity, but I can imagine lots of very complex situations where we've still got good rules. And I can imagine some low complexity situations where still we've got no guiding rules where we need to be resilient. Yeah, Drew, I, I, I think complexity is, yeah, is, is something that's thrown out there as um, like the variable that of interest for, for safety. And I'm a little bit like you. I actually say, well, what's, what's underlying complexity that causes us the, 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 us to think that that's the problem? And I actually think it's, uh, if, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, it's, it's uncertainty. So the more complex something is probably the least certain you can be about it, but that's so, but you know, in low complex situations, you can also have a lot of uncertainty as well. Like I'm just excavating my footpath and it's a pretty simple task. I'm digging a hole, but I don't know if there's an underground high voltage electrical cable uh, just below the surface. So a very low complex task with a very high level of uncertainty. I can't just have a safety one process, which says I just dig a hole with a shovel. You know, I, I need to look at this particular situation and, and what is it about that. So I don't know if that sort of is aligned with what you were saying, Drew, but I think uncertainty is something that's a real challenge for us in, in safety because it limits our ability to plan and predict. Yeah, it, it wasn't in fact where I was going, but I do, I do like that idea of uncertainty as being more of the variable. And just as you're giving the footpath situation, I, I didn't know where you're going with that example. And my immediate thought was, yeah, if I was digging up footpath, I've got no idea how to do it. So that's automatically a high uncertainty situation for me because it's a novel job. <laughs> I don't know the rules. I don't know the procedures. I don't know how it's meant to be done. And yes, I would have to rely on your resilience and adaptability. For me, that would be an unpredictable, highly variable task. Whereas for someone who has done three kilometers of footpath so far and they're just onto their next 10 meters of it, 
they can follow very, very tight routines and processes. Still doesn't necessarily change the amount of uncertainty about what's under the ground, though, whether it's a very experienced or an inexperienced person, yes. if they've got the same, same information that they're presented with. But yeah, I think in safety, people tend to throw around this idea complexity as if it is a well-defined term, and it really, really isn't. You know, c- complexity is not something with a single or simple definition. And so we should be very careful of when people talk about like high complexity, low complexity. I don't want to sort of like dive too deeply into it here, but there's a whole sort of meta-ontology about whether a complexity exists inside your mind or inside the world. And Yeah. And maybe this sort of came out of, you know, some of the work about tightly coupled and loosely coupled systems and and which sort of morphed into complexity, which is, you know, been associated with with sort of HRO theory for a long time. So maybe it's just a continuation of that. We, we went from one sociologist misusing physics metaphors to another bunch of sociologists <laughs> misusing physics metaphors. Yes. So, but I think, you know, even experimenting with teams that we, we've been doing through at the start of work shifts, you know, with, with pre-start meetings, instead of going, you know, what are the hazards and risks or whatever, just asking about, you know, what aren't we sure about today? What, what are we uncertain about? Or, or what don't we know in relation to this work? And just, you know, you have really good risk conversations when you ask people to talk about the things they're not sure about. But sort of getting back to the original point then, I think, think there is a like underlying thing here, which is that in different situations, different strategies apply. There are some strategies where you want people to reliably follow the rules, some when you want them to vary, and we can't specify in advance which strategy we want people to follow. So a lot of this training is about recognising and being comfortable in shifting out of following rules into more resilience and back again. Yeah, people have got to have the information and the experience to do that, which is why you're investing so heavily in uh, in this simulator training um, experience in whether it's maritime or, or aviation, so that you're confident that people have got the capability and know what information to to use to make those to make those decisions. So for all the people who I think drew and maybe who haven't you know explored safety too with an open mind, um, this is actually how work gets done. Like this is how our planes get flowing. This is how our work gets done. And Amalberti's always described this native resilient. You know, people are working in the grey areas in between our, our beautiful systems all the time. Uh, should we move on to takeaways? Yeah, let's do a couple of practical takeaways that I thought, I mean, not everyone's got a, um, a maritime simulator in their workplace. So let's let's talk about a few, a few takeaways. So it appears as though work simulation is an effective learning process because it involves this full learning cycle where we get knowledge, we get action, and we get reflection. So that's why it's used in these high-risk domains. That's why it's regulated in many of these high-risk domains, you know, like frequency of simulations and and all of this sort of stuff in in these high-risk domains. And so with the increased access to technology in even many of your organizations, whether it's digital twins, whether it's virtual reality um, that's expanding across all industries, it's, it's it's worth listeners thinking about ways that they can safely simulate the variability of work in their organization and wrap a reflective training process around it, even if that's actually a process around their normal work that they do. I'll just throw in there, David, that the ability to create simulators, not just simulations, is getting much, much easier. We've gone from needing to have these totally dedicated setups to being able to mock up realistic enough situations just with using personal computers and a few monitors. You know, it, it doesn't take much imagination or construction skill to create a realistic environment for a lot of tasks. And remembering that what we're not trying to create perfect fidelity, we're trying to create this backdrop for the practice and the conversations and the reflective learning. Yeah, I know the School of Aviation at Griffith, Drew, um, talking to one of the, the senior lecturers there, Guido, and, and, and when they went from having a, access to a flight simulator where they could go one student at a time through that to getting virtual reality headsets and desk-mounted control sort of um, panels, they can have 30 people sitting inside a tutorial room all doing simulation at the same time at the same so so like you say slightly lower on the on the fidelity you know the simulator's not moving around and rocking and rolling and that but in terms of uh practicing this the skills and wrapping the whole training process around it the peer learning process of 30 people in a room doing the same simulation at the same time you could probably make an argument that the learning outcome's better yeah, no, I've seen that lab and they've got things where you can like take one person and put their view up on the big screen for everyone else to look at and talk about and and then take recordings and go back and look at how different people solved the same problem. It's very cool things you can do with really quite low tech. Andrew, after action debriefs. So it, the claim in the paper is that half of the learning comes from the debrief, which is about less than 10% of the total 
simulator training time because this is this double loop learning where a person actually changes their their frame of reference for the work task and, and action so it's that real embedding uh into their sort of you know understanding and and decision making around the task so this could be done not just in a training environment but do this in your work so organizations that say well we've known for a long time the value of uh, collaborative planning or 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 toolbox talk type processes at the start of the day uh do it at the end of the day as well like otherwise you've got no learning loop if you if you just plan and execute work without doing any reflective or learning then you're actually not going to continuously improve your work so i'd probably just threw that one in there drew as a practical takeaway just to reinforce you know daily learning processes in your organ i'll agree absolutely in the building in the times and opportunities for reflections i've had mixed reports about the end of day debriefings it, it makes total sense until you consider that the very end of the day is when everyone wants to go home and it's possibly not the ideal time for reflecting and learning. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely there's a whole lot that needs to be wrapped around planning it into the workday. So it's inside work time and, um, and making it efficient and, you know, but maybe it's an end of task thing, not an end of day thing. Uh, so there might be other times, but, but having a, ref having a, what did we just do? What happened? What do we want to sustain, improve, fix for next time is important. And then the third one, Drew, is if you are doing simulator training, I would read this paper because it sort of has lots of good advice and sort of says, if you're doing simulated training, you need to ensure that it's realistic. You need to combine unexpected events and normal operations together, um, not just extreme situations, not, you know, not just the extreme situations, and focus on all of these learning processes that support this joint reflection and, and peer learning that goes on and this persistent use of hot debriefings and post uh, simulation debriefings as like, you know, really critical tools in your learning process. And the big thing there that surprised me and stood out to me was these are between participant discussions. So it's not just the people currently in the simulator and it's not just the people currently in the simulator with the instructor, but it's the different groups as they cycle through the simulator all talking to each other. That's what they mean by the peer simulation, peer learning. So Drew, do you have any others? Do you have anything else you want to say about takeaways? Nope. That sounds like a good set, David. All right. So the question we asked this week, Drew, was how does simulation training develop safety to capabilities? And the paper this week gave us really three answers, all based around the idea that we're providing reality-based work experiences that let people experience routine and non-routine operations. Uh, this lets them recognize errors and weird things coming up and resolve those situations flexibly before they get into trouble. It lets them define the limits of action and socialize those discussions. And it lets them operate with confidence, including sort of stepping into some of the more unusual situations. Um, and all of this is wrapped around this full cycle where we do, we reflect, we learn, we go back and try again. Thanks, Drew. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 